Okay, let's uh, join together in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, this is where we have camped for the Christmas season. Traveling a little bit with the wise men. And we're going to continue that today and next week as well. Get all my stuff here. Okay. Matthew 2. Our focus primarily today is on verse number 7 and 8. But I'm going to read the entire context like I have been each week. Uh, The first week I went way far back and read the uh, script from the King James Version. Last week I went all the way to the future, so to speak, up to a present time when the Legacy Standard Bible has just been, I mean the ink is still wet if you're looking for one. They're just, they're that fresh. Um, But that I read last week. So I'm going to kind of go a little bit back a a bit in time and yet deal with uh, a favorite version for me and for some others as well who like to do a lot of reading. It's called the Amplified Version. All right? So whatever your devotions is, if you want to double your time, use the Amplified. And that will guarantee it just by the nature of the words. So we're going to read Matthew, I'm going to read Matthew 12, or 2, 1 through 12 from the Amplified Version today. Uh, first, Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you so much for your word. Matter of fact, you have given to us so many versions of it with uh, different translators and the work that they've done. Thank you for their work. For we are blessed people to have a copy of your word in our hand right now. And we can read it, and we can learn of you. And I pray that that's exactly what is accomplished in this next uh, handful of minutes that we spend in your word. Do your work in our hearts, Lord. Uh, Especially this time of year, there are many, many things on our hearts. And may we uh, set them aside for a while, that we may focus on you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the Amplified Version, starting in Matthew 2. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, astrologers, from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east at its rising, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was disturbed and troubled, and the whole of Jerusalem with him. So he called together all the chief priests and learned men, the scribes, of the people, and anxiously asked them where the Christ was to be born. They replied to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are not in any way least or insignificant among the chief cities of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, a leader, who will govern and shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod sent for the wise men, the astrologers, secretly and accurately to the point, to the last point, ascertained from them the time of the appearing of the star, that is, how long the star had made itself visible since its rising in the east. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search for the child carefully and diligently, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. 
When they had listened to the king, they went their way, and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, in its rising, went up before them until it came and stood over the place where the young child was. When they saw the star, they were thrilled with ecstatic joy. And on going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They op- Then, opening their treasure bags, they presented to him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And receiving an answer to their asking, they were divinely instructed and warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they departed to their own country by a different way. Today in our verses 7 and number 8 that we're going to look at, we're going to see what people might call something like the dark side of the Christmas story. Uh, We're going to look at a villain today. A villain. So far in our study, we have seen in verse 1 and 2 a definite purpose for the wise men to come. They came to see Jesus and worship him. Uh, we saw last week in verse 3 through 6 a direct prophecy was given to them, and uh, that's especially there in the passages from Micah. Today we're going to see a deceitful proposal in verse 7 and 8. A deceitful proposal. In the New American Standard Version, the verses read like this. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, for when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Now we've talked about Herod the first week that we were here in this passage. A very wicked man. Uh, he had no concept of the value of human life. Uh, we knew when we read this text, and how many times have we read this uh, Christmas, this part of the Christmas story? We knew that the announcement that the wise men had in that palace that day was not welcome news to him. Uh, where is he that came in that is born king of the Jews? In response to this news, Herod calls them aside in verse number 3. 4, 5, 6, we're going to see all that. But it makes a a special reference here in verse number 3, that when Herod heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. This word troubled, terasso in the Greek, it means to stir something up, to stir it up. I always have a picture in my head, and I've shared this with you before. I've got a picture in my head every time I read this word. And it was a time many, many years ago when my oldest son, who I won't name, um, was a little boy. And we thought that maybe he'd like a pet goldfish. And we had bought a beautiful round aquarium, or aquarium, that's right, that's what you call it, uh, for this goldfish to swim around in, and we put it on the table, the coffee table in the living room, so he, being short, can go and enjoy looking at his little goldfish. We left the room too long. He came back, we came back in with him with a giant spoon stirring in a circle the bowl. That fish had never swam so fast in its life. 
But unfortunately, it had a heart attack too, and that was the end of the fish. You say, that's terrible. That's a word I always think of when I see this word. Terrasso, that's the word. You got it? That's Herod's condition right now. He's spinning, spinning. He's, he's troubled, is the word. Disturbed. Uh, let's see, what else? To agitate, to royal water. R-O-I-L. Like boil, royal, get it, you know what that means. It means in, in this, to move its parts to and fro, to cause inward commotion, to take away calmness of mind, to disturb him, to make him restless, to strike one's spirit with fear and dread. These are not soft words. That's his condition. Herod, by this time, has been king in the vicinity of Jerusalem for about 40 years. He's advanced in age. He's been there a long time. Now, I personally enjoy character studies. I love doing that when we get into these individuals in Scripture and find out more, as much as I can about them. I, I love reading biographies. So I've got biographies I'm reading now. Some of my uh, favorite biographies over the last few years. Um, just men we'd like to learn about. They had significance in our world, in history, but they're just one individual among millions and millions. And so sometimes we just know their names and we pass on and we recognize that they were in an office or something and we just pass on without knowing much about their life. Uh, one of my favorites lately was a biography on James Garfield, the president. Fascinating story. you got to read that sometime. Alexander Graham Bell. You know, we know him for the telephone. Did you know he was a pioneer in the x-ray machine, too? It was because of his work that we came up not only with that, but metal detectors. And that was Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, how about a guy named Dr. Joseph Lister? You'd be very glad that he's existed. Dr. Lister was a pioneer of antiseptic, especially in surgery rooms. I think of him every time I use my Listerine. That's named for him. So, if you want to read about stories like uh, uh, the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen, he did not invent pizza. All right, just in case you're wondering. He lived a very short life, but what's interesting is there were so many points of compassion in him, it's hard to know that when all we ever talk about is being a ruthless killer with an airplane. All this to say, we can see things and learn things from the lives of others, can't we? And some things inspire us, and some things teach us, don't do it that way. Which way are we leaning today? Wild guess. We're going to talk about Herod. And there's a lot about Herod you're not going to like, because Herod is not a happy topic. In Fawcett's Bible Dictionary, it gives a couple of key statements about the life of Herod the Great and his family, the Herodian family as a whole. It says that they made religion an engine of state policy. They professed to maintain the law as effect and effectively set to it at naught, the spirit of it, by making it a lever for elevating themselves and their secular kingdom. 
you might know him by the name of the temple. We called it Herod's temple. It wasn't because he loved the Lord. He was a descendant of Esau. Did you know that? Still trying to grab from Jacob the forfeited blessing. In vain set up an earthly kingdom on the professed Jewish basis and to rival the Messiah's spiritual kingdom. Uh, The Jewish religion degraded into a tool of ambition, lost its spiritual power, and the theocracy became a lifeless carcass. That was what Fawcett put in his dictionary concerning this man and his family. Herod the Great had the fruits of his own lust and insatiable cruelty known. He put to death his wife's grandfather. He put to death his wife. He put to death his two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. And just four days before his own death, he signed the order for his oldest son, Antipater, to be put to death too. He had these bloodshed acts perpetrated on on family members, on his subjects. They were all equally terrible, and a lot of people fell victim to him. Um, Let me move to this page. I don't like the last of that. He was seized with a fatal disease, we know, in his stomach and in his bowels, and he became even more cruel at that point. He ordered that the nobles whom he had called to him should be slain immediately when he died, that there be no that so that there would be no lack of mourners at his death. At this time he ordered the slaughter of all the male children two years old and under in and around Bethlehem. Uh, just exactly what Scripture had said. Uh, Josephus, the historian, records that illustrates uh, the Scripture account of the massacre of the innocents. Herod slew all those of his own family who sided with the Pharisees, looking forward to a change in royal line. They, he annihilated them too. Uh, his keenness to establish a dynasty was full of jealousy, rival, craft, hypocrisy, cruelty, recklessness at any sacrifice to gain his object. He appeared as vividly in the scriptures narrated as in Joseph. The wise men's question, where is he who is born king of the Jews, was precisely one to excite Herod's jealousy. For Herod was not born a Jew. Much less was he born a king of the Jews. He was of Esau's descent, He was made king by an anti-Jewish world power called Rome. And unimportant as the events may seem to the world, the murder of the innocents was the consummation of his guilt before God and places him among the foremost of Satan's and the world's foretold representative adversaries of the Lord. That's not a pretty biography, is it? You read that and say, ugh. So what, what is the point today? This brings me to this today. It is no surprise, folks, as you have read Scripture too, Satan has numerously attempted to extinguish the Messiah. That has been his number one job, his desire all along. You may wonder, why is he so intent on killing the Messiah? Here he is born. 
born. And that was identified in this passage too, by the way. Because when Herod called the chief priests and scribes in verse number 4, he said, where is the Messiah to be born? So he understood who this person was supposed to be. But if you go back to the very beginning of it all, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, you can't go back too much farther with human history, can you? But when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden to get them to sin against God, remember what God said to Satan. In his condemnation, he made these words. You'll find in Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Those words are spoken in the garden. And if you start in the first book of your Bible, and go all the way to the last book of your Bible, you will find that Satan has been on the attack the whole time. The whole time. To prevent the seed of the woman, who we understand to be the Lord Jesus Christ, from accomplishing his work in redeeming lost mankind, which he attributed the sins to that day in the garden. All the way to chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, we find a fascinating little story set up there for us to understand a a sign given to us to help describe what Satan has been up to this whole time. It says in Revelation 12, 1, all the way through verse 5, I'm going to read it to you. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great white, a red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and flew and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And when she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And I stopped right there, because guess who they're talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. And this dragon, who is later identified as Satan himself, sought to destroy him even at his birth. You're reading the story right now in Matthew. What he did that day in order to try to extinguish the line of Christ. If we had time, we could go all the way through the genealogy of Christ and find within it quite a few examples of how that line could have been broken except that God intervened. We read of murder. Right off with Adam and Eve's children. We read of a flood to punish the wickedness of man, yet Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We find Abraham and Sarah, the factor of her barrenness and their old age, was not a problem with God, was it? We find Isaac's wife, Rebekah, barren as well. We find later on a king named Jeconiah, cursed by the Lord that his sons would not sit on the throne of David. We find the story of extermination of the Jews in the days of Esther's 
life. We find the conquest of Babylon. We find the conquest of Persia. We find the conquest of Greece and the conquest of Rome. And we find a Herod eventually. A Herod who intentionally set out to murder the Messiah. That's exactly what Herod sought from the chief priests and the scribes when he asked where the Messiah was to be born. Even after the birth of Jesus, Herod wasn't finished yet. If you're still here in Matthew, look down to verse 13. 13. I'm going to read 13 through 15, and then again I'm going to follow with 16 and on. But 13. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night, and he left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now jump down to verse 16 still. And when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinities from two years old and under according to the time which he determined from the Magi. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Those are sad, sad things to read. So let's go back to our study. You've got a, a context to work with. It says in verse number 3 in Matthew 2, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. It wasn't something that only affected just the king. It says all Jerusalem with him, the influence of such a man. Herod's trouble, Spurgeon said, infects all Jerusalem. Well, it might, for this cruel prince delighted in shedding blood, and the darkness of his brow meant death to many. Now, I'm using the word this morning, deceit. I told you that was in my title, a deceitful proposal. According to Webster's Dictionary, the word deceit is literally a catching or ensnaring, hence the misleading of a person, the leading of another person to believe what is false or not to believe what is true, and thus to ensnare him. We use the words fraud, fallacy, cheat. Uh, it's really any declaration, artifice, or practice which misleads another or causes him to believe what is false. Look at verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and murder him. That's not what your text said. If you were inside Herod, that was his words. What did he use instead? Worship. That I might come and worship him. You know, to say that I might come and murder him would have been kind of obvious, right? 
He didn't say murder. He said worship. Worship is, folks, we know that word. It's an act of humility. It's an act of adoration. It's a word that involves godly fear. It's acknowledging our submissive relationship to the Lord. It's showing our dependence upon the Lord. We worship a sovereign God. We don't mind that, do we? That's what our hearts cry out for. That's not Herod's intention when he used that word. We worship because God has given us life. He has broken the chains, as the ladies sang here just a little bit ago. The chains of sin. We're accountable before Him. We know that. We come and worship Him, as Scripture tells us, in spirit and in truth. See, worship to us is a holy word, isn't it? It's a special word. That we, we distinctly use it for a purpose. We come to worship Him. Herod used it for deceit. He used that same word that you love for deceit. Let me tell you what that looks like. As I read Webster's Dictionary reference just a few minutes ago, we were thinking in terms of Herod when I said somebody who misleads another causes him to believe what is false. I want to walk in front of a mirror with you for a minute. It's not comfortable. It is not comfortable at all. Is it possible that we could also master the practice of deceit? We can point the finger in a hurry at this guy. He deserves it. But the misleading of a person, the leading of another person to believe what is false, or not to believe what is true, any declaration, artifice, or practice which misleads another causes him to believe what is false. Here's my heart's concern. We step in a church building on a Sunday morning to worship. That's the word we use. We call this our worship service. But how easy is it to give the image of a worshiping individual and because no one can see our heart, they don't know we're, we're not worshiping at all. I'm not going to really belabor that point a lot. Some. Not a lot. But it's worthy of examination just for a few minutes here. Spurgeon called Herod an artful wretch. Murder was in his heart, but pious pretenses were on his tongue. Then he goes on and he makes a jab. May none of us be Herodians in hypocrisy. To promise to worship and intend to destroy is a piece of trickery very usual in our days. We are a week outside of Christmas Day. Our sermons are full of shepherds and uh, angels and mangers and, and Mary and Joseph and the newborn Jesus and all that. And right now you're saying, but pastor, that's anything but this one. <laughs> You've been dealing with some pretty ugly things. You've talked about a wicked man named Herod. You've talked about his deceitful purpose that he intended to kill the Messiah. 
What's that got to do with the wisdom of the Christmas message? What does it have to do with it? Have you ever taken the time to read the book of Proverbs? I mean, just spend time in Proverbs. Some of you have. Some of you have it on your list every time you go through in a year, you read Proverbs. Some of you know that Proverbs has 31 chapters, and there's generally about 30 or 31 days in a month. And you can pick one chapter a day and read it, and you could get through it 12 times in a year. There's a lot of different ways to approach that as far as reading. The question is, have you read it? Have you taken the time to read it? It is, in the biblical library, wisdom literature. It is also in a section called poetry. And in that poetry, the the Jewish technique of poetry is very fascinating. It doesn't rhyme like Dr. Seuss. Rather, they use wisdom, logic, in explaining things by sometimes saying one line and following it with another line that says the same thing, but different words, to reinforce it. Sometimes they say one thing, and then they'll build on it, and build on it, and build on it, until it reaches a high point. And it's fascinating how they do that. But another way they especially like to express wisdom is to say something and then show the opposite in the same verse. So that you can see the contrast between the two and understand what wisdom looks like. And I'll tell you something I did. As I was putting this message together, um, I said, well, I've got to prove this point to you. So I just randomly popped open my Bible to the book of Proverbs. And I said, well, I'm going to pick one of contrast. That's all I'm looking for. The first one that comes with contrast I'm going to use this morning. And I came across chapter 14, verse 2, because that's why I opened up chapter 14, verse 2. Right away, there's contrast here. You ready for this? He who walks in the upright, up, in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. I said, oh my. I'm talking about deceit. And that verse is the first one I popped up. I'm not talking, it was just, you know, I don't know. It just happened that way. But as I'm reading it, the wisdom calls us to walk in uprightness. It's evidenced by the way we fear and we, we respect our Lord. That comes down to worship. The contrast is to be devious. It shows an inward characteristic. It's an ugly statement that says, I despise the Lord. There's so much in the Christmas message that reveals in us something that may be more than we want to have revealed. It's possible, as you have seen, that one's heart does not match one's outward actions or expressions. We have seen a man say, I want to go and worship him, but we know his intention was not that. It was murder. Outwardly, we may not look like Scrooge. We may may not be what Charles Dickens described as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, secret and self-contained, as solitary as an oyster. We may not have that on the outside. 
But what's in the heart? What's in the heart? What's in the mind? Do you know that the worst deceit is deceiving your own self? Scripture talks about that. Do you know that even John the Baptist, when he came, his ministry was described to us. And in Luke chapter 1, it was described as this kind of ministry. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. And, this is the part we normally don't watch, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I don't doubt whatsoever here in Hillsdale, we want to be regarded as people prepared for the Lord. Right? We want to be His kind of people. They even say, and I heard this phrase years ago, that heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. I want to be a prepared people. I do. But one of his jobs dealt with the disobedience to the attitude of the righteous. And I said, whoa, that sounds heavy. We have hindrances that can reveal itself as unturned hearts disobedient attitudes. People like Herod say they come to worship when in reality they have a different motive. What I see as I studied this up is a good place to see God's wisdom in sending Christ. These hearts of ours, deceitful, desperately wicked, Jeremiah says, These attitudes of ours that we could carry on the inside and no one ever sees. They could not be changed, folks, unless they're set free from the chains of sin and death. They cannot be changed unless God changes them. And in His wisdom, He looked down upon us and said... I know they need reconciled to me. And they will never be reconciled to me until I send my son. Because what the father saw was this. It's in Romans 3. Brace yourself. You're going to sound like Herod. Romans 3 verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understand. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the description of us before we knew the Lord. That's the unsaved man. And Scripture goes on to say in Romans 5, 
that while we were still helpless, <laughs> and that's quite a picture, huh? Because you couldn't have changed that heart, and you couldn't have changed that attitude. We were helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Praise the Lord for that. Romans 5, 8, my favorite passage in all of God's Word. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, even that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's an amazing thing to me. That God would look down upon me, see me just like a Herod, and say, I love him. I will give my son for him. How little Herod knew that Jesus came for his salvation too, if he would have received him. The wisdom of God's message is something that can change you forever if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes you a new creature. It clothes you with the garments of righteousness. He gives you a new heart. Changes your attitude. And suddenly you truly want to worship Him. You want to worship Him. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Do you believe Him? Do you live for Him? I told you, it's uncomfortable to stand in front of this mirror, isn't it? For even we as believers still see that little thing called deception looking back at us so many times. We go into this type of season and, boy, it's easy to put on a good front. Wish somebody a Merry Christmas. Put a smile on your face, even though you're complaining about the receipt, the price tag of what you just bought. Right? We don't mind going to the store, but the parking lot is a problem. We get frustrated with the high cost of things. I know. I know. I know what's in our heart. I've got one too. How easy it is to come to a place and say, we have come to worship. To come to a season, come to a holiday that says, we have come to worship. And yet our hearts are nowhere near that. And we can deceive a lot of people on the outside and make them convinced that we're showing them the true person when you know it's God who sees your heart. Aren't you glad He can change a heart? And that He does. There's a wisdom for you today, folks. It's not all about giving you a day off from your schedule so it's a holiday, school's out. It's not just, He didn't do all that to put a red number on your calendar or to end the year in a good way, especially with cold weather on the way. He didn't do all that just to give us a place to put up pretty lights and give gifts and all that. He came, he sent his son to save sinners, (laughs) such as you and I. That's the wisdom of it all. And yes, there was opposition. Satan doesn't want you saved. He'll blind your eyes every chance he gets, because he doesn't want you coming to know the truth. The truth. If he could have gotten his way, Herod would have exterminated Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad God's in charge? (laughs) But you've got to see that part of the story too, to understand. When we talk about these things, 
We have to look in a mirror. Say, why did he come after all? Why did God preserve him that day? What was he waiting for? What did he want from us? What did he do for us? Why did he let him live here and then 33 years later let him die on a cross? Because in the wisdom of God, at the right time, Christ was born. And at the right time, Christ died. And that's what we read in the text. That's God's wisdom. Because He loves you. He doesn't want you to perish. If you don't know Him as Savior today, you can. You can even right now. Scripture says, call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. You understand, don't you? You need a Savior. I've got one I'll offer to you. You could call Him my Savior by the time you're done talking to Him. Because He came to save you from your sin. That's God's wisdom. And boy, do we need it. If you've done that today, you have a great cause to rejoice, don't you? You can sit back and say, Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Because that's what God has done for you. You have, you have wonderful reasons this year to worship, don't you? And it's not about the trappings all around. But because He has done this for you. You come to worship Him. Is your heart engaged too? What are you thinking as you worship? You know Him. You believe Him. Do you live for Him? Stand in that mirror for a few minutes longer. Look at yourself. And look at again the Lord Jesus Christ who gave His life for you. You ready for Him to change if you need changed? If you need an adjustment here or there, are you willing to let Him adjust as He sees fit? You want Him to make things right? You're struggling with something? You know what? He knows it. You've been deceiving everybody else and maybe even trying to deceive Him. But He knows there's a scripture in Hebrews that says, He's able to decipher us all the way down between the soul and the spirit. How deep can you go? He can cut down to the innermost parts of your thinking. He knows it all. And why do I say all this today? Because maybe it's time that you have a talk with him. Why did he come? He came that we might be set free from this sin. He came that we might be set free from this sin. Don't deceive yourself any longer. It's Jesus Christ who makes a difference. He'll change your life forever. And even as believers, there's come that time when you have to say, you know what? Enough. I've been living for myself. I've been living the way that the Lord would not be pleased. Enough. Let's make it straight today. Let's talk to him today. For that is why he came. Let's not be Herod's anymore, please. If he knows the heart, then he knows your heart. You ready to talk to him? Let's do it. Heavenly Father, we bow before you today. Aware of the fact that you know every single one of us in every single way. Nothing hidden from your views with whom we have to do. You see it all. 
And Lord, we've just read about a very wicked man who used deceit to get his way. But he didn't get his way because you made the difference in the story. You're the one who protected the baby child, Jesus. You're the one who rescued him from the danger of Herod and his murderous ways. And you're the one that sent him anyway, that he might come and live among us and die on a cross for our sins. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to come, to be put in dangerous path, and yet to give your life for us, a ransom for many. We are blessed people because we know you. We are changed people because we know you. We could have all been a bunch of Herods if it weren't for you. But in your kindness you came. In your grace you gave. In your mercy you had pity. In your love you died. For us, that we might be called children of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing that for us. If there's any among us today who are struggling in their hearts, there's, there's, there's things there that are not pleasing in your sight. They've had a glimpse of it. They've practiced their deceit for a long time now, and it's time to make it right. Lord, hear their heart cry today as they call out to you. That's why you came, is to change us. And if there's some who need change today, do it, Lord. If there's some among us today who have never known Jesus as their Savior, impress upon them that they can right now receive Christ as Lord and Savior in their life, be changed forever, forgiven of their sins, and given eternal life. All those things are true. But Lord, it's you who do the work. You're the changer. And we just come before you and humbly bow in your presence. Call this our worship today, Lord. Our worship before you as dependent people. Our worship before you as those who can only receive as a beggar looks for bread. We ask you, Lord, to do your work in our hearts and change us today. In one way or another, may we be different people because we've spent time with you. And we thank you, Lord, for that and what you're doing in our midst. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.